Welcome to our Wednesday evening Bible class. Uh, we're thankful that you have chosen to join us. We are continuing our study chronologically through the Bible. At this point, we are in Exodus chapters 6 and 7. Uh, just kind of review before we start reading. Uh, you remember if you've been part of the study over uh, the last several weeks, or even if you remember here at Stuart, it's been months. Uh, we're in this time frame where uh, Moses has been called by God back into Egypt, uh, and he and Aaron is his spokesperson. He and Aaron have come back, and they have performed uh, miracles at the request of God, the casting down of his rod and uh, the hand in his cloak, uh, and potentially the pouring out of the water on the ground as it became blood. And the Israelites have, have excitedly accepted the fact that God is going to use Moses to lead them out of this captivity. This is what they have been waiting for. Uh, but the problem is, then Moses goes before Pharaoh, and God's already told him that, uh, that Pharaoh's not going to listen. In fact, he specifically told him that God's going to take away the son of Pharaoh, and that won't happen until you get to the 10th plague that's coming up. So uh, God has told him that Pharaoh's not going to listen, but still yet, even though Moses has that, that knowledge, when he goes before Pharaoh and Pharaoh rejects him, uh, Pharaoh makes everything harder for the Israelites at that point because he figures he kind of has an insurrection that he has to tamp down a bit. Uh, and so Moses, then the people go to Moses and they, they're angry because they cannot keep up and, and everything's become harder. And then Moses goes to God and wonders why it is that God has not done uh, what he told him he would do. So Moses even misunderstood here uh, because God had done it exactly uh, the way that he said that it was going to happen. Uh, it's it just Moses wanted it to happen on his timeline rather than on God's timeline. So we'll start in chapter 6, unless you want to add anything other than you have to again. Okay, Exodus chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So God says, look, you know, this is an answer to Moses at the end of chapter 5, turning to God and saying, it hadn't happened, that you didn't do what you said you were going to do. And God said, no, it, it is happening. It is happening exactly like I said it was going to happen. Uh, and now you just need to wait, and you need to see uh, what I'm going to do. But Pharaoh's never going to let them go, you know, in an easy way. It's, it was never the case that Moses could show up and say, you know, God said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said, okay, great, go ahead, it's no big deal. It was never going to happen that way. And so God said, you're going to see now just how much power it takes to overcome Pharaoh and just how much power that I have. Yeah, I think we realize around here that Moses had a very idealized view of how this was going to go down. He was going to show up to Pharaoh, he's going to do a few little miracles, and Pharaoh's going to say, okay, go ahead. And when that didn't happen, you could see that Moses was upset with God. He felt like God hadn't filled on his side of the promise. And this is God speaking to Moses now saying, no, we're still on the same plan. You just have to be patient and see what it's going to take. All right, back in verse 2. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan 
the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And let's stop there just a second. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to emphasize verse three before we we moved on because this is not the end of the conversation. But uh, you know, people get into this challenge of trying to understand what he's talking about there in verse three by saying that. You know, Abraham had known God, and Isaac and Jacob, the, the patriarchs as they were, uh, the fathers, had known God, but he says here, they didn't know me by my name. And the word there, Lord, uh, is uh, commonly translated Jehovah. And so people kind of get this idea that what that means is that, uh, you know, that God was revealing himself differently, that this is a different God kind of thing. It's just, it's just kind of confusing. But it's really very simple if you know this. This is not the first time Jehovah is found uh, in the text. In fact, it's found more than 20 times in the book of Genesis just in the accounts of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they knew his name. They knew who he was. They knew he was Jehovah God. Uh, that's not what God is saying here. What he's saying is, up until this point in time, uh, you know, as God had called Abraham and made that promise, and then he repeated it with Isaac, he repeated it with Jacob, this has been a... a uh, a communication by God, but not in the directness of the way that it's going to be now. What he's going to do now through Moses is give these people a law and make them a nation, and then he is going to become the ruler of their nation. They're going to know his power more intimately in seeing it in the plagues, seeing it in the uh, the wilderness wanderings, and seeing it in the conquering of the land, and they're going to know him as Lord, which means a ruler over them. Uh, through this covenant. And so it's not about a specific name of God. It's about a, an intimacy of the relationship, a closeness of the relationship, and a better understanding of who God is. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that when you're looking at the accounts of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and how they dealt with God, it wasn't always very direct. Sometimes God would send angels. In the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, we hear about the angel of the Lord who went and negotiated on God's behalf. It was always very separate in comparison to how it's going to be in the coming chapters, where God is going to physically lead a nation through the wilderness, and they're going to be able to physically see a representation of him in the sky. All right, let's pick up in verse 4 again. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. That's, you know, pointing back. Abraham was a stranger there, and Isaac and Jacob. And I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So he's kind of emphasizing what I was talking about just a moment ago with that relationship. God says, I have this, this promise that has been made, this covenant, and I'm going to fulfill it, and I'm going to be the one to do it. It's not Moses is their leader, but he's not going to free them. Uh, Aaron is his spokesperson, but he's not going to free them. Pharaoh is the ruler over Egypt, but he's not the one letting them go. God is the one doing all of this. So God says, you're going to see, and it's over a long period of time, you're going to see. You're going to see my power. You're going to see I'm going to let you get you out of Egyptian bondage. You're going to see I'm going to get you through the wanderings of the wilderness. And you're going to see that I'm going to be the one that's going to provide you this land. And as a consequence of that, you're going to learn really truly who I am. I can only imagine how comforting this would be to hear 
when Moses delivered to the people because God had been silent for the past five, six generations of Israelites. These people probably started to think, started to wonder if God was actually listening and to hear that he was there, that he was listening, and that he heard their cries and suffering, and he's now going to do something about it. can only imagine how reassuring that would feel. All right, verse 8. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they would not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. So he continues by saying, look, this is not new. This is not a new plan of God. This is the plan that God had made right from the beginning when he came to Abraham and said, I want you to leave this land of your fathers and go to a land that I will show you and your descendants will inherit it and they will be as numberless as the, as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. God's saying, I didn't forget any of that. I made the promise. See, that's the thing. The Israelites could trace everything back to Abraham and did so and took great pride in that, but it was never about Abraham. It was never about Isaac. It was never about Jacob. It was not going to be about Moses. It was always going to be about God. So God tells Moses here, look, just come tell the people, I listened to your cries, and I'm going to fulfill my promise. And Moses does that. But they don't listen. And the reason they don't listen well, quite frankly, is the reason we don't listen most of the time, and that's because we let our temporary problems or circumstances around us affect the way that we think, uh, affect how open-minded we are. We think that God, we put God in a box. We think he ought to act this way, and we think he ought to act at this time, and if it doesn't happen the way we think it ought to act, then we question God. When the truth of the matter is, God has here said, I, I made the promise all along, I knew the circumstances all along. I know what you're dealing with now, and I'm going to be the one that's going to get you out of this. I think it's funny that their excuse for not following God is the same excuse we so often see in ourselves and people we know. Work is too hard, and I'm really tired. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, wasn't it? Okay, starting in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he must let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So, so Moses takes this this message from God about God's going to do this and that, and he's going to deliver them, and he's going to give them a land, and he says, Moses takes that to the people, and they don't listen. So God says, okay, well, we're going to do the plan anyway. You know, I'm going to fulfill the plan anyway. And, and by the way, these plagues that are going to happen are about Israel's faith anyway, not Pharaoh's, Israel's. God's got to build them up to, to get them in a place where they will follow him. So uh, Moses goes to them, they don't listen, so God says, well, we're going to do it anyway. You go talk to Pharaoh and let's, let's go to work. And Moses gives the response that you would expect uh, most of us would give, and that is, if my own people are not going to listen to me, how should I expect Pharaoh's going to listen? But God's told him already multiple times, Pharaoh's not going to listen. It's not about, you know, going in and saying, okay, now he's going to let him know because he asked twice. No, Pharaoh's not going to listen. All of this is a setup for God to be able to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And we didn't mention this before, but 
and you can disagree if you, if you want, but this deliberate choice of the phrase uncircumcised lips to me speaks of like a dualistic meaning that not only is he a poor speaker, but he has a sinful past that he's ashamed yeah. of. He's uneducated, untalented in his mind, and he's got a past. Yeah, it's kind of hard to stand before Pharaoh with the guilt, too. Okay, we're in a place now, uh, starting in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 6. It's a little bit of a lengthy reading. Got a whole lot of names, difficult to pronounce, and usually if you're in a home Bible reading plan, these are the passages you kind of skip over. Uh, we're not going to skip over them. We're going to read all the way through them. I'm not going to bring a whole lot out about it, but there's one general overriding view uh, or point that I believe is being made here, and I want to read it all, and then we'll, uh, we'll make that point. Okay, chapter 6, Exodus chapter 6, let's start in verse 14, and we'll go all the way down through verse uh, 26 or 7. Beginning in verse 14. These are the heads of their fathers' houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Halu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon were Limni and Shimei, according to their families. And the sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Azil. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mahalai and Mushai, and these are the families of Levi according to their generations. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137. The sons of Ishar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, and the sons of Azil were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Zithri. Aaron took to himself Elishama, daughter of Amenadab, sister of Nashon, as wife, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And the sons of Korah were Aser, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Petuel as wife, and she bore him Phinehas. And these are the heads of the fathers of the Levites according to their families. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. Now I think it's significant to remember a couple of things that we haven't really highlighted a lot. And that is that Moses is recording this book. And he's not doing it until they're all the way out there in the wilderness. So he's recording this after the fact. Uh, on top of that, he's writing it to the Israelites uh, specifically. This wasn't written to us. It was preserved for us, but it was written to the Israelites. So it's significant here to see, you know, he has not just gone through, he hasn't even gone through all of the sons of Jacob and their lineage. There's something that's being emphasized here. And what's being emphasized specifically is the tribe of Levi. And the reason that's being emphasized is Really twofold. One of it is because that's the priesthood tribe. And so they had responsibilities. All of these jobs that they had to do that were by specific command, depending on who they were 
descended from and what line from Aaron and everything that came along, or, uh, or rather from Levi and everything that came along with that. But most especially, the reason this is being recorded for Egypt is to show that Moses is one of them. You know, uh, Moses was not raised a Hebrew. He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter as an Egyptian. But he was not an Egyptian. He was a Hebrew. And so the Israelites needed to remember that Moses was chosen by God and he was brought through the right lineage and he was one of the Israelites. He was not an Egyptian. This is Moses claiming his lineage. This is Moses deciding, is he an Egyptian or is he a Hebrew? And this is him saying, I am one of you. Yeah. And this is why they can trust him to lead them on this journey. All right, beginning in verse 28. And it came to pass on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? So what we had read was kind of a parenthesis. And God has now jumped back and said, Look, Moses showed up and said, I don't know why Pharaoh would listen to me, because Israel didn't listen to me. And God said, I don't really care. We're going to do it anyway. So he has been commanded. It's not been a, look, I'm going to ask you if you're interested in this. And that's kind of the way the burning bush scenario went. God wasn't asking him, but God said, go back to Egypt. And, and Moses said, nah, I'm not really interested. You know, I'm not good enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not smart enough. Finally, just send somebody else. I don't want to volunteer for the job. And God's now saying, well, it's not a volunteer job. You know, I've got something for you to do, and you're going to choose to do it because I have commanded you to do it. I find it interesting that God has already accommodated Moses and his insecurity so much on this journey that Moses was like, I don't know what I'll do. And God's like, well, I'll give you these miracles you can do to show that I'm with you. And mostly I don't think I can talk. He's like, well, you can bring your brother with you. And like all these times God is accommodating him, and Moses is still using the same excuse that eventually God just like, do it. Yeah. It's like a parent with a child. Okay, Exodus chapter 7. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall speak to Pharaoh that he must send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgment. So again, God's being very clear. Moses, you're going to go in there. You are representing God. And Aaron is your prophet. Now think about that. Uh, a lot of times we get kind of confused about this idea of a prophet. We think uh, too many people believe that a prophet is just somebody who told the future. And there were obviously prophecies about the futures and, and, and prophets who spoke about the future. I mean, there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus before he, before he comes to earth. So they did speak about the future. But that wasn't the primary function of a prophet. The primary function of a prophet was to speak for somebody else. And so a prophet of God spoke for God. He delivered a message that God wanted delivered to the people. So what we're being told here is that Moses is going to stand before Pharaoh kind of as a representative of God, and Aaron is going to be the one, uh, you know, just as Rich was just talking about, by God's accommodation that's going to speak. 
He's going to speak the words to Pharaoh uh, that, that Moses is bringing that, that's from God. And so uh, God says, you're going to go to the job, Moses, and you're going to stand there as my representative, and Aaron is going to speak for you and for me, and, and he's going to tell him again. He's not going to listen. You know, uh, Moses wants him to listen. He wants it all to be perfect. And God says, it's not going to happen. Pharaoh's not going to listen because I'm going to show my power. And in order for me to show my power, this, this Pharaoh's got to be pretty stubborn. And he is. He's stubborn. And so God says, I'm going to show my power. I'm going to put my hand on him. And I'm going to be the one to accomplish this. I just like the idea of Moses and Aaron going and being told ahead of time that you are going to fail the first couple times. This is not going to work. And seeing their response each time as if they expected something different to happen. Which we do as well, right? Yeah. Okay, verse, uh, verse 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. And then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them. So they did. And Moses was 8 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now, it's interesting to me that the wording there is that the Egyptians will know who God is. And the reason that's significant is because uh, one of the things that God told Jacob when he was just about to go down into Egypt because of the famine and Joseph is there and he stops. He stops before he leaves the land and God tells him, go on. Don't be afraid to go down there. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make you a nation and I will bring you back. And he talks about prosperity. God's going to prosper them. Well, they've been slaves for a long time, so they're not prospering as slaves. But before they leave Egypt, what's going to happen is the Egyptians around them, the neighbors that are around them, are going to give them gold and silver and precious items before they leave. And the question is, why would they do that? And the answer is given right here, in that God says, when I'm done showing all these plagues, what the Egyptians, not Pharaoh, not the leaders. What the Egyptians are going to gain from it is they're going to learn who God is. And so later on, they're going to contribute to this, uh, uh, the, to the, the wealth and power of the Israelites who will go out in the wilderness and they will make this, all these items of worship and they'll make all the, uh, the tabernacle and everything that went, to, went, went into that and everything that they accomplished, it comes out of Egypt with them. Because God accomplishes. So that, that's what they do. Moses and Aaron go in and they stand before Pharaoh. And Moses is, listen to this, 80 years old and Aaron's 83. Uh, so I guess they just, they didn't get the memo that you're supposed to retire early, right? They, they're still working. I'm just excited to keep reading going because coming up we're about to see a new period in the way that God acts through Israel. There's this like really unique section of the Bible, Numbers through Joshua, where God is very shock and awe, where he is very much about showing his power and what he is capable of to humans, and I'm just excited to get into that. Okay, we start in verse 8, and uh, you remember God gave Moses on the, on the mountain the signs to take to Israel to prove that God sent him, and one of them was that he was to take that rod and throw it down, and it would become a serpent, and then when he grabbed it by the tail, it became... A stick again, right? Okay, that comes out here now with Pharaoh. Uh, Exodus chapter 7, verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. 
So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So they're standing before Pharaoh, and Moses represents God, and Aaron is his prophet speaking for him. And so when Pharaoh says, I'm not letting him go, Aaron's got the rod now. Aaron's holding this rod that I was going to use, and Moses just tells him to throw it down. And he does. And it becomes a serpent, just like what happened with Moses on the mountain, and just like what happened standing before the Israelites when they first came back to Egypt. It becomes a serpent. But, well, Pharaoh considers himself a god. He presents himself as a god, and so he's got around him his wise men and his magicians and whatever else is there. And somehow they're able to uh, manipulate the circumstances or whatever and, uh, and do the same thing. But it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing at all. It, God's power is stronger seen in the fact that Aaron's serpent, his rod that's become a serpent, swallows up all of the serpents of those wise men and, uh, and, and so they, they have no power whatsoever. But the thing is, it still doesn't work. It still doesn't work. It, it's supposed to signify to Pharaoh that he's not a god, and which he already knows, by the way. Uh, it's supposed to sign, signify to Pharaoh that God is powerful and he's going to get this job done, but doesn't do it because Pharaoh is just that stubborn. You, you've probably never been there. You probably never knew you were wrong and yet refused to admit it and do the right thing anyway, right? Uh, well, that's what Pharaoh does here. He's just not going to listen because he has that heart of a heart. And like anybody else who is stubborn, when proven to be wrong, he digs his heels in a little bit deeper. Yeah, it gets worse, right? Okay, so now comes the plagues. Exodus chapter 7, beginning of verse 14. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go, which Moses already knows, right? He's already seen this. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water. And you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him, and the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Now stop there just a second. A couple things. God says to him, Tomorrow morning. Next step is tomorrow morning. Every day, Pharaoh goes out to the river, and so we know where he's going to be. We know when he's going to be there. I want you to be there, too. And when you're there, this same rod that Aaron has thrown down and became a serpent, he said, the one that became a serpent, I want you to have it in your hand. It's in Moses' hand now, not Aaron's hand. And the reason is, is because God is signifying that God is the one doing this. Moses represents God. So the Israelites need to see this. God has chosen Moses to, uh, to lead the people. He is God's representative. He has the stick. So go out and stand there with the stick and say for a third time now, God said, let my people go. Now, nothing's changed. So he already knows what's going to happen, but that's the job he's supposed to do. And the rod switching hands is an emblem to show that the person who's holding the rod doesn't matter. Right. God can make it into a serpent if Aaron's holding it. He can use it to perform miracles if Moses is holding it. It doesn't matter who has it. It's the fact that God is behind it. It's the fact of God's power. That's right. Verse 17. 
Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know, by this you shall know, that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. So by this you will know that I am God. This is not just about Pharaoh, is it? It's not even just about the Israelites, is it? This is also still about Moses. You know, if you've studied this account before, you know what's coming. You know all the plagues. You know they're going to leave Egypt. You know they're going to get to the Red Sea and think they're going to die. You know that once they cross the sea, even after Egypt is gone, they think they're going to die of starvation or of lack of water. And I mean, it's just a constant struggle for them that they just don't think they're going to make it. If their leader doesn't have confidence in God, how are the people ever going to follow and so this is about more than Egypt. It's about more than Israel. It's about more than Moses. It's about convincing these people who God is. And so he says, here's what's going to happen. The, the water's going to turn to blood. All the fish are going to die. And the people are going to just, you know, this, this river that is the life of Egypt is going to become like death to Egypt. And the people just, they can't even be around it. Egypt was such a superpower in this era because of their river and their canals and their technology and diverting that water and God doesn't ease into the plagues. He starts right off by taking getting rid of the one thing they pride themselves in. I uh, probably should also point out here and, and there's it, this is somewhat speculative. We don't know uh, a time frame for everything that's happening here. Most uh, based on the evidence believe that these plagues occur over a period of some maybe nine months uh, and that this first plague occurs over a time frame of maybe a week. And so uh, we know that it's the morning after he's gone into Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has said, uh, you know, you, you, I'm not letting him go. That he goes out and turns it to, to blood. But the reason I want to highlight that is because, you know, we read about the, these people need water, right? And if the river is their water and they've, they've only lost it for an hour or two, that's not that big a deal. But if it's something that continues, then what's going to happen is they're going to have to dig for water somewhere, right? They're going to have to find another source if this, the, the river as a source is now gone. Okay, verse 19. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt. So you see, Aaron's got it now, right? Uh, over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the vessels of wood and vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood uh, throughout all the land of Egypt. So I think there's two steps here. You have Moses who has the rod in his hand, and God says, you're going to strike the river, which he then does. And it all becomes blood, and all the fish die. Then Aaron takes the rod and stretches it out over the land, and everything they've got in the land turns to blood. So all that they have gathered up in their pots and they kept them at their homes, they all become blood. So now they're in they're in a different they're, they're in a life and death situation, if you will. They gotta have water. You can't go that long without water. And so they're they, they realize all the people that are involved with this, which is all of Egypt is now struggling because they've got to find a water supply. And it's not just like, you know, for a family of four. We're talking about a nation. 
Excellent. Yeah. I mean, again, this is just God beginning to show his power, his control over life and death, that he can take something so meaningless that you wouldn't think about and change it into something that is catastrophic. All right, 22. Here we go again. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Interesting to me that the magicians are able to emulate this miracle again in some way. And the reason it's interesting to me is because all the water in the land is already blood. So even what's in their pots and everything, already blood. So where is it you suppose that they even found water to be able to do this? And it's got to be that they have worked, they have dug, they have dug the trenches, they have dug the wells, whatever it is they could do. And that takes some time. So we're not saying, you know, Moses caused this to happen and immediately the magicians did it too. Like kind of, it appears, happened with the serpents. You know, Aaron's serpent is still there when the magicians do it because it swallows them up, right? Now this one had to take time because they had to dig up the water and then come up with a way to do it. And once again, it accomplished what, it, what they wanted to accomplish, which was to harden Pharaoh's heart and not let these servants go again. So the point is, it went just exactly like God said it would go. Wasn't the way Moses wanted it to go. Wasn't the way the Egyptian or the Israelites wanted it to go. But it was the way that God said it was going to go. So one plague has happened, and Pharaoh didn't listen, just like just like God said. I find it funny that these all-powerful magicians that Pharaoh have go through so much effort to find clean water just to make it undrinkable. <laughs> like they are doing the opposite of helping at this point. If they were so powerful and had all these magical practices. Why weren't they able to reverse what God had done? Yeah, that would seem to be the thing that would have made everything better, right? right. They could get, get rid of all of what Moses and Aaron and, and God, likewise, has done. They could reverse all that. But, but you know, people hear what they want to hear, right? So that's what Pharaoh does here. He says, my guys can do that too, so uh, let, let, I'm not letting them go. Okay, uh, next Wednesday night, we will be in chapter 8, assuming we are still under the uh, stay-at-home orders. Uh, will be in chapter 8. I hope you'll study that between now and then. We're thankful that you joined us for this class today. Uh, but let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be together today to study your word. And we're so thankful for these accounts that you have preserved for us. We're so thankful that we can learn uh, how to develop our faith and how to trust in you, even when things don't go the way that we would like for them to go. We pray that you will be patient with us. Uh, and that you will allow us to, 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 to uh, shine your light before those who are in our world at all times. Help us never to trust in ourselves. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen. amen.